Welcome to the Jewelers Podcast, the podcast that speaks to jewelers, retailers, and industry supporters about their experiences and insights into the jewelry industry. The Jewelers Podcast is hosted by Laura Moore. The Jewelers Podcast is part of the Jewelry Industry Network. Whether you're a jeweler, retailer, valuer, gemologist, teacher, or student, the Jewelry Industry Network is here to help you build your business in the jewelry industry. Join us today with a free membership at www.jewelryindustrynetwork.com. We can't wait to work with you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Jewelers Podcast. We have had so much on in the last few months at the Jewelry Industry Network, so it's great to be back on the air with another interview with one of the industry's most loveliest jewelers. That's coming up shortly. But before we start, I'm excited to share a little of what's been happening behind the scenes at Gin and what's coming up. We recently held the Jewellery Industry Fair in Sydney in August. It was such an incredible event at the Carriage Works and we were really lucky to be treated with some of the world's leaders in the industry on stage, including the stunning Paola DeLuca from The Futurist and Transvision. We had Andrea Lucille Poller from Hill & Co. We had Damien Cody, the president of the International Coloured Gemstone Association. We had Leanne Kemp from Everledger and a host of incredible speakers. I could name them all, but it might take us all day. Each speaker was recorded on the day. So if you would like to watch any of these recordings, please head to the Jewelry Industry Network website and register as a free member and the videos will be available for you to watch inside our portal. We are preparing for our next Sydney event, so stay tuned for those details as we'll be sending out information on that very soon. But luckily, you won't have to wait until August for another Jewellery Industry Fair as we're running our Melbourne event again, this time in March 2024, our third year running the fair at the Timber Yard. We're really excited to see so many exhibitors returning to this event and new ones joining us this year as well. The scene is set for another gorgeous, relaxed and inviting event. So we welcome you all to this fair on the 9th and 10th of March. 2024 in Melbourne. Head to the website and register your ticket. Can't wait to see you there. Also coming up on the Gin events calendar is a special and intimate event just for you. We'll be releasing an industry retreat for the new year for a small number of guests. The daily challenges and pressures that we all encounter in the industry can often take its toll on our mental and emotional health. So we've decided to organise this retreat where we aim to address those issues head on and provide a nurturing environment for self-care and growth. This retreat will be facilitated by experts in the field and will be a beautiful way to recharge, learn some tools and get reinvigorated in your business. So we'll send out information about that as well shortly. But for now, I hope you enjoy the next episode of the Jewelers Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Jewelers Podcast. Um, today, I'm joined by a lovely gentleman, Jason, from Jason Re Jewelry in Sydney. Welcome, Jason, to the Jewelers Podcast. G'day, how are you going? Good to see you. It's nice yeah, to have a bit too. of a tour of your workshop. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, sorry about the uh, <laughs> trying to find the best Wi-Fi uh, in uh, in the Rabbit Warren. That is our uh, workshop and shop. That's that's great. I think it's one of the perks of having a Zoom podcast is that you can see each other and and have a bit of a look through each other's spaces. It's really nice. Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. The, the <laughs> 58 steps prior to sitting down and chatting are a little bit huffy, huffy puffy. <laughs> a little bit huffy puffy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Jason. What are you? Where do you work? What's your business about? And um, how did you start? Sure. Um, okay, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, I think like like lots of jewellers, we um, basically uh, focus on bespoke 
jewellery. So, you know, everything is custom made. Um, we transformed ourselves a little bit uh, about five years ago uh, to having, having a crack at having like a real shop. Um, you know, we'd always been upstairs. All of our customers would make appointments to come and see us and we would 100% of the jewellery that we made would be, you know, designed on the spot with the customer, made to order, et cetera, et cetera. And we would never sell product from a, a jewellery, from a, from a cabinet or, or, or stock or anything like that. So we kind of thought, let's give that a go, see what it's like. And it's been, it's actually been pretty eye-opening um, to find okay. that there actually is this big cohort of people who don't want to have this necessarily a personalised experience. They don't want to spend a whole bunch of time um, designing something special for them. They want to see something that's pretty and nice and fits them and walk away with it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been interesting to understand that there's people like that in the market, which up until till that point in time I'd never never come into contact with. Mm. There's still that's probably maybe ten percent of what we do, but it's been been fun to rather than everything that we create coming from a conversation with a customer to sitting down and going. What do we feel like making and designing today? And yeah, what do you guys want to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then and then it's, it's sure enough. Eventually, at some point, someone comes along, and that happens to be exactly what they were looking for. Wow! So that's been been kind of interesting. But I mean, backwards uh, from that, I um, started my apprenticeship in I don't know, like about eighty nine, I think. Um, uh, did my apprenticeship in a pretty traditional fashion I guess worked with a couple of different jewelers um, my father was a jeweler he'd retired by the time I started uh, my own apprenticeship but mm-hmm. he kind of gave me a few good bits of advice one of them was to try and learn some setting which was you know actually really <laughs> good I'd probably encourage anyone yeah yeah listening. I think it's uh, I think it's on the list of most people who are training now to, to learn some yeah. setting. certainly a little bit easier to to get a hold of but absolutely that was that was good advice um, did you work probably, with him? Can I cut in? Did you work eventually? With him? Yeah. So, so, so I, I finished my apprenticeship, started my own business, and I think he sort of got a little bit, um, I don't know, uh, wistful, thinking, "Oh, actually, making jewelry was was kind of fun." So he yeah. he actually lived out of town. Moved, he moved down to back down to Sydney, and we started um, then working together oh, uh, nice. from that point on. And so we kind yep. of just started. A business again um that was up in uh, up in the dimmicks building and that oh, was yes. you know this sort of upstairs um bespoke experience as opposed to you know doing trade work i think a lot of jewelers go through a similar mm. kind of pathway you finish your trade pick up some trade work yeah. start to get your own clients and dabble into custom and, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah absolutely um so yeah so that that was Pretty, cool. pretty much it. And then we, we moved uh, down here to where we are now in the rocks uh, in Sydney. Um, so it was actually six years ago now. Um, super nice to have a bit of a, a tree change, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. For those of you who work in the city, you'd all find the same thing. When you're looking at your, your, your window, usually you're looking into a light well, you're surrounded by other buildings, you don't know if it's daytime or nighttime or sunny or raining. <laughs> yeah. So moving to somewhere that we could see the sky and the water was, was actually yeah. really fun. I was going to say, your spot is beautiful. You can, you're can you right there on the water, right near the water. You know, it's a two-second walk to the to the shorefront there. And, um, you know, it's really – I was going to ask, do you have more tourists go past you now being in that location than what you would, would normally or? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So mm. um, certainly pre-COVID, um, lots and lots of tourists. Um, unfortunately, lots and lots of tourists who didn't really understand how jewellery gets made um, <laughs> and their eyes would kind of glaze over when you said, uh, you know, 
we either make this or they'd hear some hammering in the workshop and they'd were worried that you know something was terrible <laughs> was happening. In. We had to explain <laughs> that there's a workshop and there the noises. This is where jewelry comes from. Yeah. Um, so again, that was insightful in in a way yep. to, to realize that there's um, it's actually quite a niche thing that we do here in Australia where we actually have a really interesting jewelry culture, mm. um, which is quite distinct. And I think it's even quite different to the UK, where I think you know we probably see similarities between Australia and the UK, but like most, I think a lot of Australians would would have a jeweller. Like mm. even just this concept of having not necessarily a family jeweller, but just a jeweller that you know and that you trust and that you go to and yeah. you talk to. Um, it's, it's like having a dentist. Like this is my dentist. Yeah. I use this guy whenever I go. Yeah, it's a bit It's a bit like, it is a bit like that, like the family jeweller, the person that your mum recommended and her mum recommended and, yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, that um, until then I didn't really appreciate that that was actually not the same all over the mm. world that um it was it was a really a bit of a foreign concept and you know we've had clients like this one woman from in uh, georgia she lived in atlanta and she was just saying like she couldn't think of anywhere uh other than maybe if she traveled to new york that she'd be able to find like a jeweler who would sit there and, and make it and uh, that was really gobsmacking that, wow. that um she didn't have access to a qualified bespoke uh, jeweller in in the community that she lived in. Yeah, wow. You know? I mean, we were speaking to somebody the other day about um, similar topic to this in about the UK, and that in the UK, even it's it's interesting that you bring this up because um, even over there, you'd think the culture would be really similar to here, and yet most jewellers have one specific purpose, or the majority of them have one thing they can do really well. They're like setters, or they do you know one thing. And as you were saying, you know, our teams here, our jewellers here have completely, you know, diverse skill sets. They know what they're doing. They have, they can make the entire piece. They can set the entire piece. So it's quite different to UK even. That's right. And I think, mm. um, I know when I was growing up wanting to learn, I always thought if I went, and, you know, learn in the UK or in Italy or somewhere, it would be, uh, be far superior to, to learning here. But I guess the absence of those specialised skills does force you to be familiar with, with all of those skills. So yeah. like even for us, like in-house, we do enamelling now in-house thanks oh. to the amazing Debbie Sheasel, who <laughs> I think she's taught she's at least three of my, oh, of my staff. And so you're just including little things like that into it, whereas I know jewellers that I've spoken to in the UK would be like, there's no way I'm touching that. That's that's a job I would yeah. give that to the enamelist and Absolutely, that opens up lots of possibilities when you've got access to craftspeople who are so sort of well-trained in their one specific thing. Their, their craft, <laughs> um, their skill, yep. So I, I think we sort of forget how sort of flexible that makes us. And I sometimes I sort of wonder if, you know, through COVID, the fact that we all, no, no one could travel, there was there was a lot of things that you couldn't do, whether that actually was, um, I don't know, a good space for us to be in, that, that being able to be flexible and to change what we're doing and to have these um, skill sets and I guess an ethos where we're prepared to do everything in-house. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a talent that we've got here that we, we don't really realise until you talk to other people and like, what are you talking about? You do your own setting and, yeah. uh, you know, you do all these things yourself. Yeah. Even from a design perspective too, because all of those skill sets sit with the one person, the one jeweller or the majority of them, it means that your designs are opened up to a whole new world as well because you know what's possible with enameling or you know what's possible when things need to be stone set. So I think even, you know, like Australian jewellers' designs are world-class and yeah. I think it's really maybe a testament to the fact that we can learn all those skills as well. Maybe that's, that's where right. it's come if- from. 
if, if only we got really good at appreciating that and marketing yeah, I ourselves know. accordingly. <laughs> That's <laughs> a job on the list. <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking of marketing, your logo is very interesting. Tell me a little bit about the dragon in your logo. Uh, uh, sure. So, well, first of all, it's not a dragon. <laughs> oh, it's not a dragon. Sorry. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> looks like so a dragon. I mean, it looks very much like a dragon, but it, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a griffin. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're totally I've different. watched Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just look the same. That's all. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> Tell me about the griffin yeah, in yeah. your logo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's, uh, I mean, it, it was um, just came from my... I think my great 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 grandfather's signet ring, which I've still got kicking around. Um, oh, cool. The ring's uh, pretty terrible. The original piece of bloodstones cracked in about three places. But uh, yeah, that was um, something that he had. And actually, my my sister was just in the UK, and she managed to find the same insignia on some wall from a knight that was in the I think it was the Battle of Hastings or something like oh, that. Oh wow! Was, cool. However many hundreds of years ago, it was way more effort than anyone else would bother putting in, but that was that's a <laughs> cup of tea. Anyway, um, so I mean that's our, our logo. Um, cool. So I, the inspiration from from the grandfather's ring. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, I think the the base is uh, from Wales. Um, I don't know yep. too much about um, that sort of side of the family. It was yeah, some time I think ago. you need to come up with a bit of a range of uh, Griffin inspired hand engraved things I think, I think we might have missed the boat there with game of thrones <laughs> <laughs> yeah no there's <laughs> new ones coming out all the time the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. that's true that's true you have um, and i'm not sure if you've always been like this and and maybe you can talk through your trends a little bit but you have a really strong focus on alternative stones in your engagement ring so you focus a lot on salt and pepper diamonds and sapphires and colored gemstones do you find that that's something that your clients are asking you for or is it more so your design ethos coming through with these products and it, and clients are being really quite receptive to that? That's a good question. I like ultimately it's always a bit of both and well, it's, look, there's lots of different ways that I could answer that. I mean primarily I would say coloured stones. Fundamentally that's what we specialise in now would be coloured stones but 10 years ago Absolutely not. Like a lot of other jewellers, we sold a lot of diamond engagement rings, a lot of white diamond engagement rings. And for me personally, that's just a, a market that it's just become so saturated. It's become commodified. The clients that I still sort of get for white diamonds are specifically only the people who are looking for design experience because there's plenty of other places that they could chase down a white diamond chances are either cheaper or easier or without the engagement that we will have. And so I don't know if this is blasphemous to say, but I just think white diamonds have gotten a bit boring. Yeah, I just don't think they're as expressive as what a lot of coloured stones can be. And I see this all the time and it's a focus that, that I put on all of my clients is to push them a little bit and I'll even frame it to them at some point. I'll say, look, I've got some homework for you here. Like, you know, you're, you're buying engagement. This is something that you don't. Um, you don't buy these very often. You don't buy anything very often that you're going to kind of wear every day for the rest of your life. So, yeah. you know, there's let, let's really think about this, but also really just to kind of push them to to go that one step further and to solicit something that resonates with them as either a couple. Um, there's often people have different cultural backgrounds. They'll have different meanings of, of things in their life. They might like the outdoors. They might, who knows what it might be. But to sort of just tease some of those threads together to not just go for this ring that they might have seen that we've 
pat on Instagram. They're going, I really like it, blah, 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 blah. That's great. But to then just get them to go that one step further that we're going to make this ring from scratch anyway, why yeah. don't we add something in there so that no one else has got something the same as yours? And it's not front and centre of the design. It's not changing anything fundamentally about it. But it just it, it's a way to bring customers into that space of what jewellery ultimately does represent to people. And, mm. you know, how do you create anyway all of this sort of a sentimental value in any, anything? And it's mm. not by putting the biggest, most expensive diamond into a ring that doesn't make you cherish it more. Mm. Mm. Um, so, I mean, like I had a, a chap last week, he's engaged to a woman from Latvia we were just researching um, something in Latvia. There's like the, they have these charm rings where there's these seven little insignias on them that have, you know, a, a meaning. In, if you were Latvian, you'd probably be like, oh, yeah, totally. I know what those are. My grandma's got one. So yeah, it's not I'm a dragon, it's a griffin. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not going to take off. But it, yeah. it, it, was, it was just a way to kind of sort of put a bit of a ring around you know, he's choosing a, a sapphire and the design yeah. and you know, very, very focused on that the diamonds needed to be carbon neutral and all sorts of things. But um, just to sort of build some true sentiment into a ring rather than it just being something straight off the shelf that um, that he kind of liked the look. Yeah, I, um, I love that because <laughs> I think it's, it's very interesting that the, and obviously it's all come from marketing from De Beers back in whenever it was. and um, But it's interesting that there's always been the push for, the cleanest, whitest, least imperfection diamond as engagement ring for everybody. And yet it is the least significant look and feel to represent a unique relationship. So for somebody that's got, you know, you've got an entirely, you know, unique relationship, two unique people coming together to form a relationship and what is representing them is exactly the same as everybody else in theory. So it's great that people can now go, okay, yeah, I'm going to have a stone that nobody else has anything like it because it's got uh, a history, a story, an imperfection that I can see and appreciate. So yeah. it's, um, yeah, I think that's a nice thing about what your story is with your. Yeah. I, I think, I still think most jewelers do that in a way. They maybe not articulate it and, and possibly not even realize that that's what's going on. But I think mm. that comes back to what is the, culture of jewellery buying and jewellery making in Australia is that this is what's going on and that is how people choose to buy their jewellery. So that's why I refer refer to like the jewellery culture in Australia is actually quite exotic and I don't think we necessarily realise that it... Yeah, no, you're right. It's a very, I mean, every jeweller that we speak to on the podcast or just in person or wherever, they have um, the driving force for them is to create something beautiful for that person, which, you know, isn't going to be the same product as what they've created for the person before in order to centimize their, well, you know, to represent their relationship or their life story or whatever else it might be. So that's, that's the driving force for every jeweler that we speak to really. It's, um, yeah. and it's a beautiful culture. It's a lovely space to be in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's right. So I think there's uh, lots of ways to tap into that. And mm-hmm. as we were chatting previously, it does require you to wear a few hats. You need to, kind of source all of these things you need to develop communication skills to talk to people you need to actually get the, the things made you need to run a business and it's yep. it's not necessarily easy uh, to do but it is probably one of the really enjoyable features I think most 
well, actually not all, I've now met enough jewelers who cry at the idea of having to have a deep and meaningful conversation with their customers and <laughs> really, really hate it and, and <laughs> have a bar of it. Um, but we kind of put it front and centre of, of what we do. Like our, our tagline at the front of the store on all of our stationery is emotional distillers and treasure smiths. And that kind yeah. of encapsulates the, the approach that we take to, to making jewellery. And it sounds like it's going to come with a drink at the end of it too. Distillery <laughs> 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 in-house. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, your, how big's your team, Jason? Have you got um, – how many have you, uh, how many you got in your team? Yeah, so at the moment uh, there's five of us that work here full-time and actually at the moment we're an all – female workshop except for myself wow uh, which i've got to say so i was actually again just thinking about this today it's really one of the big big changes um that i've sort of seen in the last 15 years is just particularly the participation of women in our industry it's um you know there've been a couple of threads that i've seen uh, online about dinosaur jewelers saying these just absurd things like why would you employ a woman or they can't <laughs> do this and they can't do that and it's I was absolutely shocked when I... We can cook and clean. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, isn't it? Is it with... Yeah, so long as we have our husbands buying us the tools, we'll be fine. Isn't it horrific? It's... it's, I can't believe it's still out there too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, I've certainly had plenty of women who have worked for me generally on on the bench. I would say all had exactly the same experience of Mm -hmm. the sort of rampant misogyny and sexism that was in our industry and Mm -hmm. hearing how shocked other men were to hear this going and going, oh, I don't believe it. And almost kind of have to sort of hold them by the ears and say, like, have you ever actually talked to anyone, asked them and listened yes. to, to what's going on? That said, you know, from when I was doing my apprenticeship, and I think it was probably the first year where there was, I think, more than one female in the class. I think we probably had five or six when we were getting um, people applying for the last vacancy that we had here. It was 100% women applying wow. for the job. So clearly things have gone from the when I first put on an apprentice, there was government incentives to, to pay employers an additional amount if females are employed. So that sort of positive, you know, going from that point where, the, where there were these government initiatives to increase female participation in our industry, mm. that they have definitely changed the, mm. the face of our industry. And if you were looking at it from the outside, either as a, as a man or a woman, you'd, you'd see people who kind of look like you working in our industry, which is really, really good. Yeah. Um, and these ridiculous comments that people would make about people being physically somehow unable to do something, I think it just kind of represents how unimaginative people can be. I remember one of the issues that came up early in our workshop was like drawing down wire. And that was, and I still hear this now, guys, going, oh, you know, you can't, you've got to be a big tough guy to draw down some wire. And so we've got a draw horse. Like there, there's actually a tool for it. All and right. we got this draw horse. It was great because then we actually like invented all of these other techniques that you can only do with a draw horse. And it, the draw oh, horse wow. doesn't know whether you're a guy or a girl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think too the women are finding that there's more, they may not have even been aware of this, but they're finding that there is more women in the industry than they were even aware of 
either. Yeah, right. So okay. they're, they're now going, oh, there's actually more women in this environment than even I thought that there was. I mean, we've got a new group, Women in Jewelry, which is fantastic because all these women are coming together yeah. and they're talking about things. We find with our statistics, even with the Jewelers podcast, our listeners are 60% female. The people that are in Jewelers Co, 55% female. So it's it's definitely a that's, fair percentage really of the industry. That's interesting here because that's, that sort of would be my bellwether, but um, yeah. I'm also acutely aware that, like, I how would I know? Like, I, <laughs> well, you got four in the workshop. Yeah, yeah. A bit of an echo chamber, and I guess all yeah. jewelers uh, can suffer from the same fate that you you yeah. only talk to um, the people in your very narrow in your book, circle uh, periphery. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What What do you think you know now that you wish you'd known? And I and it's a question people often ask, but because of how many different people you've worked with and employed and the changes that you've seen in the industry, what do you wish you'd known then when you started your business versus now? I actually think it would be learning how to say no. <laughs> I know there'll be a, <laughs> people might say haven't learned that lesson yet. But <laughs> yeah, I haven't learned that lesson yet. <laughs> I think that, I mean, learning how to say no, I think requires you to really think about, look, you, at some point you realise you've got a limited amount of time and things that you can create per week. And I think this is the, the problem that every jeweler, probably lots of other businesses in the same way, you run into the same problem that if you're there working for yourself, as a lot of us do, we start off on our own, you're limited to how many hours you can work each week. And if you're working on an hourly rate with a subcontractor, there's there's a ceiling there straight away that it doesn't matter how hard you work, there's only this many hours per week. And at some point you're kind of going, yeah, I'm really working hard, um, but I sort of want to maybe do something else. So you, you think, oh, I'll either employ someone else, I'll expand my business, I'll, I'll grow and do this. And it brings along a whole bunch of other challenges of time that you need to either manage staff. You've got to spend a lot of time making sure you've got work coming in, your overheads go up. And it's really, really hard to find the kind of the sweet spot where you've got this nice balance between doing the things that you enjoy in your business mm. and of not necessarily avoiding, but just getting good at doing the things that you might not be so good at or learning how to just say, no, I'm not going to do that. And there's a lot of jobs that in an effort to please customers, I'll say, sure, no problem. I mean, yes, I can do it. But after a while, uh, you realise there's all these other things that you probably should have done that are either more profitable or more important to your business or just more enjoyable than fixing Aunt Betty's, you know, safety chain on her rolled gold <laughs> pendant, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Poor Aunt Betty. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, look, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, if, 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 if someone was asking for advice, I think getting just a really broad range of skills is, mm-hmm. is probably the best. And um, certainly when I'm teaching my jewellers here, I will absolutely be trying to expose them to as, as many different facets, in particular setting. I think setting, learning how to set is just so important to, to make jewellery. I, I still think it's incredible that as jewellers we're sort of taught to kind of make these things that go off to an imaginary sort of person and then they come back with stones in them. Often we, we don't kind of learn like what actually happens in that process. Just thinking about all these uh, imaginary stone setters out there going, hey, no, we exist, we're here. Oh, no, that, that, absolutely <laughs> they exist. That's, that's exactly right. But I'm sure a lot yeah. of them are sitting there going, why did the jeweller make it like Do this? this? Don't yeah. they know like yep, this yep, makes yep. my job really, really difficult and I could yep. do a better job if only they understood what was happening. And so it's not from a point of view of, 
all of my jewelers actually needing to become setters, not at all. But, but it's having about the understanding. knowing what happens because I know that it improves the way that they make jewellery. Yes. It's as simple as that. Yes. Um, and ultimately it means that, you know, they're best, we're still all going to be making jewellery and, and setting sort of takes a bit of a backseat in some yeah. ways. But it goes um, back to that first thing you were saying too about, you know, jewellers here in Australia have so many different skill sets, but it gives them the ability to make really amazing pieces because they understand what goes into this element, this element, this element, which... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you then sort of then take design somewhere else if you don't start to understand what are some of the limitations? And yes. I, I have these kind of conversations when people start working here when they'll sort of be making a setting and we sort of do things, I don't know, usually a little bit, differently to other people sometimes just because um other times because there's a good reason but the question will really be like this is how i make a setting and this is just the way i've always done it and this is the way that i was told to do it but then when we sit down and sort of break down well, well why are we making a setting either at that thickness why aren't we polishing it why are we polishing it you kind of need to know why otherwise there's, there's no way that you can make those decisions and you can't then develop ideas and concepts because you don't actually know what the parameters are yeah, great lead into my next question. You've won multiple different design awards, and I'll ask you a little bit about those in a second. But how do you teach your jewelers to design <laughs> or think about design, or can yeah. you? Is it something that they even that you can even impart that knowledge? How do you do that? Yeah, that's that's actually a pretty funny question. So, <laughs> and I actually have an answer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, and anyone who's worked with me will probably be rolling their eyes at the moment. But anyway. <laughs> So there, we actually have a couple of couple of rules. Um, and actually, funnily enough, like the girls in the workshop asked me this last week, like, what are these? What are these rules? And like a lot of things, I try to sort of keep things super, super simple, even like with the way the workshop works. I feel like one thing I've learned is there's always a lot of risk when you take on bespoke work because, you, you know, you're only making the, the piece once. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the, the pitfalls. So there's always this emphasis just to try to, keep things as simple as possible but to sort of keep it interesting so rule number one in terms of just designing stuff is to have a red hot go and everyone in the world just gets sort of rolls their eyes when they'll say you know what thickness should i make this wire or how should i solder this on and i'll just have to turn around with them and say seriously just have a red hot go like learn how to do it i can i can tell you how to do it but you're just going to either learn a really dumb way that i do it or you're only going to know one way to do it and you're not going to have that experience of learning how to kind of teach yourself or how to learn. The cop out. You're just copping out, not wanting to tell it's, them how yeah. to do it. <laughs> it does. It does sound like a bit of a cop out, but there's a really good test at the end. Either it worked and that's it great. Like you go for it. Uh, or it didn't work and you also learned something. Learn why. Yeah. 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 And so I think, and I, and I see it all the time and, and I, I fell into this trap as well, that, Often, I think a lot of us jewelers, we, we're a little bit scared to, to try something. We're working with these expensive gems, expensive materials. There, there is an absolute sort of high-risk uh, game going on that if you break something. So the, the, the general um, theme for most things that we make is don't break the client's gemstone, don't stuff up the ring. So it, it actually forces us to be really conservative in the way that we approach making jewellery. So... That definitely has a place. But if we're designing something new or if we're creating something new, you've just got to jump in there and, and have a go. And even if it fails, it's a it's still a win. I think we're we're super, super lucky with the stuff we get to play with. Like 
at the start of COVID, the, the guy at the coffee shop around the corner was trying to flog off all of his salami and his coffee and everything else because it was all perishable. I said, jeweler, if you kind of spend, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks on gold and you stuff it up, you get to melt it up and start again. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, a, it's, it's almost like a no loss. So, yeah. yes, the stakes are really high, but if you just kind of jump in there, have a red hot go, you're going to learn something. The other rule, and it's sort of broken into, into, into two rules, but they're the same kind of thing. But one is, actually, there's one before that. The first, the, <laughs> the, the, the one before that is to invent something. Mm-hmm. And that's the other kind of litmus test. This is for if we're doing any sort of, for like a design competition or something like that. The, okay. the, the rule that I gave to all of my guys, like, to do whatever you like, but just in, try and invent something. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, again, it's a bit of an open kind of thing. Like, oh, what, is, what do you mean? What, how do I invent yeah. something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what yeah. does that mean? Well, and so yeah. it, it joins into the first step, which is we'll have a red hot go and like find what this thing is. So like there's stuff that we did. Um, we, we stumbled across this thing that happens when I didn't realize this, but when you get gold really, 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 really hot, it'll actually fuse onto the surface of a diamond. So if you take, and you need basically pure gold to do this and like, you know, lots of other things, you you need to try and create a bit of an inert atmosphere and stuff like that. But we then sort of stumbled upon this thing where you can kind of fuse gold onto diamonds just using a charcoal block and a torch. And and wow. that was just by going, I don't know, what would happen? <laughs> Give it a go, yeah. yeah wow, yeah, yeah. okay. And so and then ended up sort of designing what I thought was this really cool necklace that just had these diamonds that looked like they were suspended on a on a neck piece that's sort of floating in the middle of nowhere with no setting contraption around them whatsoever, but they were actually just fused onto the gold on the pavilion side and you couldn't sort of see where it was sitting. Wow. Um, so that was fun. But, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, because some of your award pieces look like they might, uh, there's one ring on your website that's flat lying down and you've got like three diamonds just like like they're floating on the side of it. Yeah, yeah. Is that that technique or is that? Are no, they no, actually, that's a different one. <laughs> it's a different technique. So yeah, you use yeah, lots yeah. of like very floating tension set diamonds and I'm wondering if yeah. there's a bit of a fusion of the different techniques to make them maybe not necessarily technically tension but look like they might be tension set or something. Yeah, so, I mean, look, there's all different things. That particular piece, the Orion ring, that uses some pretty specially cut diamonds um, to set them in a way that is still strong and durable and to kind of look like they're going to break at the same time. Yeah, I was going to say, they don't look durable (laughs) at all. It's a very, very um, artistic piece, but it's, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be wanting to wear it. Yeah, (laughs) it's scary. Yeah, so, I mean, that's there's a bit of a crossover there into that is not an engagement piece of jewellery. It is not something that someone says, I'm going to wear this every day. That's a design award piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're going to kind of wear it and enjoy the fact that it looks like something terrible is going to happen. It won't, but that's. That's part of the experience, yeah. So what's rule number three? Uh, Rule number three is is texture and form. Um, And to me that's the essential ingredient to, I think, to any interesting or any interesting object, um, jewellery included, is to play with both different textures. Um, And I think it's something that, you know, a lot of jewellers don't tend to explore very much. But given like the materials that we work with, it's you can make so many interesting textures on gold or precious metal surfaces. And then the other is form, just like not using flat surfaces, creating an interesting shape and an interesting form. And they're kind of interchangeable. So the two rule, the, the other two rules are 
texture and form and form and texture. It's like which one's going to kind of lead the other. Mm. And mm. so generally using different textures on golds, that helps you to read the different forms that you've put into a design and vice versa. If you come up with an interesting shape, to me the best way to really show off how interesting that shape is is to apply different textures or even just one texture, but often contrast between textures allows you to read the form in a much, I don't know, it's just a much more interesting more aesthetically way. Aesthetically pleasing yeah. way. Yeah, but that's just, that's just me. I mean, what would I, <laughs> what would I know? <laughs> well, what would you know, award winner multiple times over? <laughs> clearly, clearly you're hitting the mark somewhere. You've got some stunning pieces, just absolutely beautiful pieces that I just, multiples of which I remember seeing them at the, JA Design Awards going, oh, that's just incredible. Like your necklaces that are just oh, beyond beautiful. Um, tell me about them. They are so unique. There's not – some of them are uh, – you can sort of see where the design inspiration has been similar between some of them. But other than that, they're all so different. And you talk a little bit about on your website where your inspirations come from, but how do you even find – the initial spark of inspiration to even know where to dig deeper, if that makes sense as a question, because you're so diverse in where you're looking, where you're drawing inspiration from. Where do you start? I don't think there's anywhere you start. I think in my head it's always sort of switched on. So walking around, you just kind of see something and then you think, ah, that's kind of interesting. So, I mean, as an example, I the, the first big piece that we won an award with, this was sort of a necklace um, called uh, the Klimt necklace. And it started off as, as two things. One, I just happened to see this interesting kind of dress in a, in a window while I was walking around the, in, in a street. And it just had this sort of interesting pattern to it that was kind of similar to that. And then at the same time, I was looking for a way to use this technique that I just read about in this book. And it was a book from oh, the, the late sort of 19th century before we, I don't think before there was electricity. There certainly was no electricity because there was no electroplating. Seeing this dress that had this interesting pattern and then trying to use a technique that I'd read about in this really, really old jeweler's guide from, I don't know, like 100 years ago. And it was using this super old technique of how to gold plate a piece of jewellery. And it was before we had electroplating and so it was all about using different chemicals to try and dissolve away the, the alloy from yellow gold to leave you with just a pure gold surface. Prior to that, jewellers would gold plate their jewellery by um, this awesome technique where they'd put a bit of mercury in their hand and a little bit of gold and they'd mix it around with their index finger and wipe that over the, the jewellery. And so this yeah, was perfect. like... This is like the next best thing. Like, you wow. don't, don't mess around with that crazy mercury stuff. No. Use these really dangerous chemicals instead. And <laughs> <laughs> so it was. It's a chemical technique that was designed to make nine carat jewelry look like pure gold jewelry. But what was interesting was that when I mixed this stuff up and I bought the chemicals and blah blah blah, when I tried it with higher carat alloys, what it actually does is it strips away the alloy and it leaves you with this beautiful natural pattern in the gold, which is the actual crystal structure of the gold itself. So it's wow. always a random pattern. The pattern that you see depends on sort of how you've worked the gold itself. Um, and it was, again, just like a random thing. So it was a way to sort of marry this just random technique that I thought sounded interesting and this sort of pattern on a dress that I saw and then just sort of comes together. Wow. 
Easy. Cool. Yes, so it sounds <laughs> yeah. very simple with the mercury involved as well. No, yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. Do you yeah, find but, uh, the do you find the techniques that you're you're developing and and experimenting on? Do they work? Do they find their way into your everyday design consultations? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah, and and certainly the pieces that win awards are usually absolutely not commercially successful. They're all still in my safe. They haven't sold <laughs> to anyone. <laughs> You know, for example, that exact same technique, we actually use it a lot in one of the Mokamegane combinations mm. that we do, which looks really, really fantastic when you combine platinum and 22 karat gold together. Mm-hmm. And the chemicals that eat away the surface of the gold, they don't touch the platinum. So you get this beautiful contrast mm-hmm. between polished platinum, random mm-hmm. pattern in the gold. Looks, uh, yeah, it looks great. So there's, there definitely was a commercial um, sort of application for that. Uh, that technique but there was another piece that we did where the inspiration came from just seeing a picture of a moth in a magazine Mm -hmm. and it was this sort of really exotic moth that was found up in the dane tree and it just had this really interesting kind of texture like the little feathers on the moth wing Um, when i saw it it looked a lot like oxidized gold most jewelers would know you know when you're heating over a bit of 18 karat gold it goes blue and then it goes purple and then it sort of goes boring and black and you sit there wondering, why can't it just stay blue? Why can't it stay stay purple? <laughs> so we sort of played around with, with that to sort of see how do we sort of capture some of those sort of oxide patterns in the gold. And have them stay there. Yeah, and and at the same time make it look like the surface of a moth from the danger. Wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Cool. That's fascinating. I think it's, I mean, they're such beautiful pieces. It's um, it's good to see that you've still got them. I think that's a nice thing that you haven't <laughs> sold them because they're still yours and they're in the same. But, yeah, I think it's really fascinating to have the ability to do those designs and be inspired by them, to work with your team on them as well, and to not just be, I suppose, doing your consultations and things. You've got that outlet to be able to experiment, whether it's through the awards or not. You know, that's a really nice thing to be able to do in, yeah. in your business. Yeah, so I think I think that's probably what a lot of jewellers enjoy, though, is that we do have to have these different acumens that we work on. And uh, mm-hmm. while it would be nice to just sit there and design things all day long, if, if you don't get to talk to people, well, you, you, you don't get that kind of inspiration. I think I would say probably one of the, the biggest sources of inspiration is my customers. Yeah. That they come in asking for all sorts of random weird things. Yeah. And, um, and then you put your mad scientist hat on and... And so, crazy, well, yeah, crazy. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, yeah, yeah. But even when it's just simple sort of little things, I think that's going back to it's what we were talking about earlier, that sort of expression of someone's, whether it's usually either their relationship, there's something's happened that they're trying to celebrate. You know, we're really lucky that that's the kind of moment in people's lives that we get to see them. Mm. Um, and they're usually really good times. So to be able to just sort of add that as a little something as part of a creation, it doesn't have to be a moth sitting around your neck. Like that's just <laughs> probably a little bit over the top for most. But to take that inspiration from your customer and think, how can I, in a sort of a nice understated space, make something that's really special for you that signifies all those things that you're sort of feeling and all those different emotions that you're going through? I think that is it's really, really special to have that. And then to be able to get your hands dirty and go in full workshop mode and throw hammers and swear and when things don't go right. <laughs> Love it. Jason, what's the thing that you're the most proud of in your career so far? <laughs> I'm getting on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Mine too, interviewing you. Apart from that. <laughs> of course, apart from that. Number two, second most proud thing. I don't know. What's the proudest thing? 
I honestly don't know. I don't know. How many arms can you put in this thing? <laughs> cut them out, all out. Yeah, just I mean, you've, cut you've, them all out. So you've won all these awards. You champion women in the industry. You've worked with your fi- your family, your dad. Yeah, There's okay. probably lots. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> don't I, I, know. I think they're all, they're, all, <laughs> they're all kind of fun, part and parcel of the same thing, aren't they? Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't, I just couldn't put like, one thing like obviously i'm super proud that i got this industry recognition like that is that certainly means a lot because as i said before we do sit in these echo chambers we don't know if we're making nice jewelry or bad jewelry or whatever so it certainly is fantastic when uh, your peers say oh holy crap that's really unreal how did you do that and like oh, well, I'm really glad I can talk to someone about that because <laughs> otherwise, like, you know, it's like that whole, you know, if the tree falls in, in the forest, does, does yeah, it even does happen unless someone, someone gets to say, hey, that was really amazing. So, look, I would just say, you know, I guess being part of this industry, being able to have those experiences both with customers, with the people that, that I work with and other industry people, it's, it's such a cool industry to be able to, to find that little niche that you, you fit into. But I don't think there can be one... Thing that you can because it might be something better <laughs> I was gonna say there's more to come you're only partly through your career anyway so maybe the best is still yet to come yeah it'd be easier <laughs> for some old dithering jeweler who was just <laughs> set the ship off to, to the farm send her to the farm yeah, yeah no oh that's yeah that's good I think that's a good position to be in just appreciative of all of the things you've dealt with or experienced so far one so far yeah. love it you know, the other thing which, and, and I, th- I think a lot of jewellers uh, would recognise this too, is the number of clients that we have that are really envious of what we do, that they will say things along the line of, oh, I, l- I think it's so great that you get to do this thing that you love doing and it's also your job. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so if it had to be one thing, it would be the fact that you get to do this thing, that whether I needed to pay a mortgage or not, I'd still be making jewellery. Uh, yeah. because it's it's fun it's it's yeah. it's a lot of fun and it's a really great creative outlet it's sort of like you kind of have to do it and I think again a lot of other jewelers find themselves in this space wanting to sort of make things not necessarily knowing how to do it slowly one way will gravitate towards making jewelry and find that that's their thing that that's that's the way that they express themselves is, mm. is making jewelry so Jason um, how do you feel about jewelers and their marketing efforts yeah good question glad you asked in, in my experience, and, and myself included, jewelers are terrible at marketing. We absolutely undervalue what it is that we do, what it is that we give, what it even represents, what we're, we're giving to people compared to what similar trades people would be selling their time for and selling their expertise for. And it's it's a, it's an own goal every single time when you see people either undercharging or not realising how valuable their experience is. To me, one of the best things that, that we have done, apart from, I mean, everyone's on social media, everything else, but is just finding ways to give uh, and lend credibility to the service that you're offering. You know, there's a bunch of different ways that, that we do that through your own marketing, through winning awards, especially like even just entering awards. It's actually not even about winning because no one ever asked you oh did you win something they see a Mm. picture that you're a finalist you're a a designer jeweler and people Mm. will value that and it lends credibility to what it is that you're doing and I guess the other thing that we do is being members of the guild and stamping Mm. our jewelry with these stamps and I'll sit there and I'll say to them they'll they'll say what's all this sort of stuff on the inside of the ring I'm like oh well 
Thanks that for asking. Is, yeah. And so this is me saying that in 100 years someone can find out that I made this ring in 2023 mm. and I want them to figure that out because I'm really proud of this thing that I've made for you. And mm. it's it's a, a different level of credibility to saying, oh, yeah, I have to, you know, market 18 carat for the same carat and that's, mm. that's it. That's the end of the story. <laughs> As an artisan too, how amazing is that thought process to go, if you stamp your griffin on the inside of your ring, in 100 years' time, some person in America could be like, where's this ring from? I've got no Absolutely. idea. And look back at it and realise, oh, that's a Jason Ree ring yeah. from 2023. That's phenomenal. I think that's, yeah. that, that's a very that's powerful thing. And it's such a simple, easy simple thing, thing to do yeah. to say that you stand by your work to the level that you want to be identified as the yeah. maker of this ring. Yes, um, yes. And I guess in turn, it also, if you're there thinking, Hmm, will I solder this properly or not? You're like, damn, I better. <laughs> See, <that's right. laughs> got that's my right. stamp on it. Someone in Young Jewelers Group is going to bail me up and say, what's this handicraft? <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> Which jeweler on this forum made this ring? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I think yeah. that the, over, the overarching thing there is remembering just what the, the value add that we do bring as, as makers and people who sit down and tailor these experiences for our customers I think that we forget that sometimes that it's it's really unique and it's a, a really valuable skill that we have that we often just don't charge for correctly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes it really hard to to then offer that service if you don't can't actually run a business to to do it. Yeah, yeah, especially when that is the business. The business yeah. is to be part of people's special yeah. experiences. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason from Jason Ree, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you on the Jewelers Podcast. Thank you so much for your time and no all your beautiful for stories. That was great. Awesome. We'll see you again. Okay. Ciao. Thanks so much for tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe using your favourite podcast player. See you next time.